This podcast contains swear words. Hello and welcome to Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne, a podcast about art making, creativity, not giving up, I'm looking at you, and living well in the process. I'm coming from the perspective of a performing artist, but the themes and issues discussed here apply to all of us. Whether you consider yourself an artist or not, life is a creative act. I'm your host, Tara Cheyenne Friedenberg, a choreographer, an actor, dancer, writer, educator, a parent, a tired person, living on the ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish people here on the west coast of Turtle Island. Okay, so here is our November 2021 episode coming out in December. Yep, that's what's happening. Um, Here's an opportunity to just give yourself a break. I've been observing lately the idea that what if I don't do X, what will happen? Will anything bad happen? And if something quote-unquote bad happens, will it be bad for that long? So I just want to put that out there in your ears. Maybe there's stuff that's kind of like niggling at you. Is there stuff on your to-do list that, what if you just took it off your to-do list? I don't know. It's worth experimenting with. So with that, our November episode is coming out in December. And I think we'll all survive. So thank you for your patience. I'm very excited to share my conversation with Carmen Aguirre. Carmen is a playwright, actor, amazing human being, salsa dancer, parent, director. The list goes on. She's written like over 20 plays, which is like <clears throat> blows my mind. Originally from Chile, she's written books, novelist. So if you've not heard of Carmen, do Google. I'll put some links in the show notes to her bio, her books. She's a core artist with Electric Company here in Vancouver. And they share a studio space with Terrashine Performance at Progress Lab, which is cool, cool, cool. So many cool people in that building. But before we dive into the interview, once again, I would like to remind you to rate, review, share this podcast on your socials and with your friends. Word of mouth works so well. It does really help us get the word out and more people listening to Creative Minds talk about creativity helps us all with our own creativity. So I think it's a great thing to share. And if you have the capacity to donate, terrashineperformance.com, upper right-hand corner, donate, click it. It just happens. It goes right to the page or we'll put the link on the show notes. Very much appreciated. And now my interview with the amazing Carmen Aguirre. All right. So Carmen Aguirre, welcome. Thank you for taking your time because I know you're busy (laughs) to talk to me today. What is going on in your world right now? Oh boy, like work-wise? Yeah. Why don't we start with work and then we'll progress into what's really going on? How's the menopause transition going? (laughs) Okay. We can talk about that later. (laughs) 
got back from Stratford where I spent two weeks. I'm artistic associate of new play development there. One of three artistic associates. Uh, the others are Kamana Tibarikure and Mukansi Musioki, amazing people, both of them. And it was the first time we actually got to meet in person, which was bizarre because we've been doing everything on Zoom. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was great to be there. There's a, a playwrights retreat that happens every year at Stratford. It didn't happen last year because of COVID. It's usually three weeks. This year it was two weeks and we only invited six playwrights instead of eight. And it was amazing to be there with them. And we also hosted a whole kind of week of workshops on topics that we really wanted to discuss. And we invited all kinds of interesting people from across North America and also a bunch of actors because we wanted to dive into a couple of scripts and do some experiments The main thing that we wanted to discuss was really starting to challenge this literal casting, which has taken over the theater world for very good reason, right? So what we mean by that is, you know, if you're going to do a play that has all Latinx characters, then only Latinx actors should play those roles. That's what we're calling literal casting, right? So at this historical moment, that makes perfect sense for very obvious reasons that I I don't think I need to get into with you because, you know, (laughs) because you're you, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But the question posed was in 30 years, do we still want to be doing this? Right. Right. And if not, how do we get there? How do we get to a place where it's okay, for example, non-Latinx actors to play Latinx roles in a caring and respectful manner? As opposed to, oh, I'm just a white guy. I'm going to do a Latinx show and have zero Latinx people involved, (laughs) which is what's been happening, right? Yeah. So how do we go from like, allowing is not the right word, but you know what I mean? Having having non-Latinx actors, for example, play Latinx roles in a respectful way. That was the question that we posed. And we also posed the question in the present tense, Mm -hmm. right? We said, are there situations currently, like right now, as we speak, where it would be okay to not do literal casting? So for example, if there's a small city in Canada that wants to do a play with a bunch of Latinx characters, and they don't have the funding to bring in a whole bunch of Latinx actors from Vancouver and Toronto, Do we deprive that small city of experiencing a Latinx story? Right, right. Or is there a way to do it in a respectful and caring manner? And it's also a question that we brought into today in terms of university programs and theater schools, where it's becoming increasingly difficult to produce plays and to program plays because the students refuse to play anything other than what they identify as. Uh Again, that's a problem, right? So uh, those are the questions that we brought into the room that we were aware that they were very controversial questions, right? And it was great. We had a week of lively debate and we walked away with more questions than answers, which was the point. But we felt it was time to start to bring those, those questions forward into the public square of the theater world. Absolutely. Yeah. So I did that. And what else am I doing? I just did a day on set yesterday on, oh God, what is it called? Superman and Lois. Oh man. (laughs) 
and doing a couple of days more on that next week. You know, the actor life, right? Um, and then dealing with a bunch of writing deadlines, which I can get into if you feel like it. But in a nutshell, that's my last couple of weeks. Amazing. Well, you are a star of stage and screen. <laughs> writer of books and plays and how many plays have you written? I guess I've co-written about 25 plays. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's fantastic. I knew there were many. What was interesting you said, and I think this is an important thing to think about is that bringing up questions brings up more questions. And that's actually not something to shy away from, which you're so good at. And I love that about you. And I feel like there's a lot of, especially amongst those of us white folks, who find ourselves in these conversations that the... Sorry, you cut out there for a second. Amongst which folks? (laughs) The white folks. Oh, the white folks. Okay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know we've got a little bit of cutting in and out, but we'll navigate it. But that fear of the question leading to more questions, isn't that actually a really fruitful place to live in amongst all the questions? Yes, yes. But I think we're currently in a climate that I like to call fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. We're currently in a fundamentalist climate where even asking the question is dangerous, whatever the question may be, right? Fill in the blank, whatever question it may be. So in my case, I'm a racialized person, right? I know that there are many white people who are afraid to ask any question about anything regarding race because they're terrified that even the act of asking the question is in and of itself racist or white supremacist. Right. Which I think is tragic that we've gotten into this fundamentalist climate where even asking questions is, well, something that people are afraid of doing. Further siloing. Yes, absolutely. You know, and not to mention that if somebody with uh, the party line, (laughs) they are destroyed. You know, so I think it's a very scary climate. I think it's unfortunate. I think it's further dividing us as opposed to unifying us. I think it has its roots in this neoliberal identity politic that has taken over. And I think it's really, really something that's happening in the global north and in the elite, right? Right. Like in, you know, the arts communities, we are elites, right? Yeah, it's just too bad. Yeah, it's, it is too bad. It's, really, it's a bummer. It is. it is because, okay, look, as you probably know, I've been involved in the struggle against systemic racism in the theater for 31 years. Yeah. When it was the absolute worst possible thing you could possibly do, when it was like career suicide to say systemic racism, you know, and I was the one Latina racialized woman in the entire Western Canada in the theater publicly in the nineties, constantly using terms like systemic racism and and more representation and equity and diversity using those terms and paying a very, very heavy price for it uh, in terms of the effects that it had on my career. Right. Yeah. Because I was pathologized And I was vilified for speaking in that manner, right? It was misogynistic racism leveled at me all the time in the form of not getting work because it would always come back to me that people would refuse to even think about me uh, having me in a rehearsal process, for example, in a creative process and an artistic process because they thought that I would be difficult to work with because of my political views. Mm. That somehow my political views meant that I was 
unprofessional. So it was a very heavy price to pay. So what's happening now obviously did not come out of the blue. You know, it's something that has been coming for a very long time, the reckoning, right? Right. And that people like myself and Marie Clements and the late, great Lorena Gale and the late, great Ayanna Miracle fought for very vocally in the 90s. What we did not fight for was a fundamentalism or a climate of fear where people are afraid to ask questions. So my motto has always been, it's Harsha Walia's motto, actually, and I love it. It's hard on issues, soft on people, Mm. you know? Fabulous. Yeah. So, you know, this notion that we're all in this together, nobody knows everything. Together, we know a lot. Nobody is disposable. Everybody is accountable. And I know that that's what I was fighting for, like an expansion as opposed to the exclusiveness that was happening in the theater community of white people, right? Totally. I was never fighting for let's get rid of the white people. No, for me, it was like, let's expand, 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 right? To really reflect on a very basic level, the cultural and racial diversity of Canada on our stages, right? So yeah, I'm sad that we're in the current climate. I don't know how long it's going to last. I do not subscribe to that philosophy of, oh, the pendulum has to swing to an extreme and then it'll come back. No, no, it doesn't have to do that because the cost is too high. Yeah. People's lives have been destroyed. Our colleagues' lives have been destroyed. So already cost is too high, you know? Somebody having a different opinion than me, somebody, maybe one of my colleagues might say, I have no clue what the hell Carmen is talking about. There is no systemic racism in the theater. They should be allowed to say that. Right. Somebody can have that opinion and be okay, you know? Yes. And we can talk about it. (laughs) Yes. You know, and then at the end of the day, if that person continues to say, Carmen, you're wrong, there is no systemic racism in the theater, that's okay too. They can have that opinion, you know? But we're so far beyond that now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you see any little beacons of light, especially in terms of like, I'm so interested in practice. What are the practices? How do we practice art making? How do we practice being together, collaborating? Do you see in your own practice or other people's practices that are like, ah, like that's a place. In regards to what we're talking about, you mean? Yeah. In regards to where we can move away from this swing towards this fundamentalist thinking or acting, uh-huh. ways where we can be together and be in our differences yeah. and make art, because that's you know what we're, in theory, supposed to be doing. Yes. Well, I mean... Because I've been at Stratford now for about six months, you know, one thing that Stratford has been doing, which I think is great, and I know that other people are doing this as well, is a couple of things, right? So one thing that they're doing is this program called Cultural Pathways, where, for example, me as an artistic associate, I have to read a bunch of scripts that they are uh, either thinking of programming or are going to program and kind of highlight possible quote unquote problem areas, you know, possible areas where racialized communities might, you know, feel like, okay, this is a racist play, for example, right? Right. And flag those and talk about how it might be addressed, either aesthetically or by cutting certain lines from a script, or if it's a living script, like by a living playwright talking to the playwright, 
without accusing anybody of anything, right? Without accusing that person of going, you're a racist. How dare you write? No, no, no. I have blind spots. We all have blind spots. And there a conversation can happen, right? Then you're actually in conversation. Exactly. For example, right? Yeah. As opposed to, we have to throw this entire play away or this entire playwright away because, you know, they wrote some lines that might be seen as racist by some people. Or even if they are overtly racist, I still believe you can have a conversation without shaming, right? (laughs) Without punishing. And then we all learn. We all learn because we're all in this together. You know, I just keep going back to nobody is disposable. Everybody is accountable. So that's one thing, for example, that I think is great. And it's something that we're doing before the play ever reaches anybody else's ears or eyes, including workshop actors, for example. Right. So that we're hopefully nipping things in the bud and in so doing, having a conversation about it. Right. And isn't that the crux of what we do is the conversation. Yeah. And that idea that anything produced must be like unquestionable. Yeah. Is ludicrous, right? Yeah. And here's a question. So you also are a star of the screen. How has that been through the pandemic and just like been in the progression of your career? Have there been like good changes or I haven't worked in TV for a long time. So. Oh yeah. Well, I'm in and out of TV because I'll book entire years off because I'm too busy. So I just booked off the last six months. And now this is my first gig since I got back into it a couple of weeks ago. And I happened to get this gig. What I'm noticing, right. Is that there's way more culturally specific roles out there in TV land for Latinx people that are very purposefully not the racist stereotype of either hapless victim or dangerous criminal. Right. I was shocked in a good way to learn that, for example, Superman and Lois, a show that I would never watch just because it's not my, my, yeah. <laughs> my type of show. Um, I guess one of the co-stars is this Latinx character. And so I play his mother. That's amazing. I mean, the other day I auditioned for a Hallmark Christmas movie of the week (laughs) where where the entire family is Latinx. That's unheard of. Wow. Right. And none of these roles are the racist stereotype of hapless victim, dangerous criminal. Right. So I'm noticing that. And that's, that's really cool. In the nineties, I would only audition for hookers and maids. Right. That's literally all I would be seen for, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> I remember talking to somebody about like, oh, um, a movie where there's a, a, a Jewish protagonist, um, Fiddler on the Roof. Right. Exactly. Yentl and <laughs> The Chosen. I mean, it, it is better now, of course. Thank God. Yeah. But, um, you know, when I watch TV, I'm just like reading names, especially I'm always on the lookout. There's, oh, there's just, there's more women writing. Yes. There's more representation, I think, in the writer's room. And so, and the directors too, are you feeling that? Oh, yes. Like even yesterday when I was on set, the director was a woman, you know, before, as you know, that was rare, but I've seen that more now. Like when I go on sets and I'm like, oh, the director's a woman. This is great. Yeah. Can you feel differences in the culture of things if a woman's the director? I have found that, I guess I've had good luck. I don't know, right? That my experiences on film and TV sets for the most part have been great in terms of like, you know, you hear horrible stories of people being harassed or whatever, unless I've like completely forgotten something, (laughs) 
Yes. I don't think that I've seen that, nor have I witnessed it. I know that I haven't lived that, and I, and I don't think I've witnessed it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I can think of one time yeah. that uh, there was a director who was a complete asshole on a TV show. This is in the 90s. But he was an equal opportunity asshole. Right. Yeah. Like it, he wasn't targeting women or people of color or he was just generally an asshole. Yeah. The across the board. Yes. Yes. The working man's asshole. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm so interested too, because I see your name everywhere and you're a core artist with Electric Company and you're writing and mentoring and facilitating and that how do you take care of your own creative life, your own creative process? What does that look like for you? And do you have some like strategies that really work or some things that really don't work that you have to avoid? Yeah. Like there's no way around it. You just have to do it. And so I always have a deadline. Deadlines work. Yeah. For example, if you're writing a book, you sign a contract that you will hand in each draft. Like on this day, you will hand this draft. On the other day, you will hand the other draft. You can't sit there going, oh, inspiration didn't hit me. Inspiration is for amateurs, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, as you know, right? So deadlines. With my playwriting commissions, there's deadlines. With my books, there's deadlines. When you have to audition, they give you a deadline for when you have to hand in the audition. So you do it, right? Like... (laughs) Otherwise, you don't get to hand in the audition, right? Um, When you go on set, you're not learning your lines while you're standing there on your mark. You've learned your lines. You've done all the background work that you need to do to have your character ready, to know what the hell you're doing, what you're talking about. So at the end of the day, I think it's pretty much like any other job. That's how I treat it. And as you know, I come from a family of Chilean refugees who lost absolutely everything. And when we came here, we came with absolutely nothing. And I was raised in a community of janitors. And I myself would go and do the janitor work with my family since I was seven, right? I am very, very, very aware of the absolute privilege that I have in being able to make a living as an artist. You know, much of my community, the elders that I grew up with are still janitors. Yeah. You know, that's my community. So there's just no excuse as far as I'm concerned. You know, there's just no excuse. Is it hard? Of course it's hard. But also, you know, I was raised in a socialist community, you know, with the belief ingrained in me and also that that was modeled for me that whatever skill set you have must be put to the service of the community, right? So that's how I see it. People are expecting me to do X, Y, Z, so I'm going to do it. You know, I have to write a play because there's a bunch of actors who are expecting that work. So you do it, right? It's not for you. It's for the audience and it's for your, you know, your fellow cultural workers. I love that. I love that we are accountable to our gifts or the thing you have, your aptitude, whatever you want to call it. And that is when I've been mentoring lately, it's like, well, it's, you just got to do the work. Mm-hmm. You might have those little moments of inspiration where it's like, oh, I love doing what I'm doing. This is wonderful. Just peppered throughout the like, oh God. Yes, exactly. Like Picasso used to say, right? Inspiration exists, but it has to find you working. Oh yeah. That is a good one, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
be busy. Yes. That's a bumper sticker I read once the Jesus is coming, look busy. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, totally do the work. Yeah. You like me are also a parent. I'm so happy to see things coming across my inbox about supporting caregivers or like, you know, caregivers in theater, you know, to toot my own horn in dance, I've been putting childcare in my budget lines for the past 10 years without permission from the funders. But I'm like, well, if I don't do this, these dancers are making $3 an hour. So we're just going to do this. How has that been for you? Because you're a solo parent. Yes. And that is not easy. No, (laughs) it is not. (laughs) I'm not a solo parent. I have one child and I'm like, oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it's extremely hard for sure. It's getting easier because of, now he's older. He's 15. Oh. Yeah, but I just took him everywhere with me when I could. I'm very lucky that my family lives here in Vancouver. So when I couldn't take him with me, then my mother would step in. Whoever was able to step in would step in. It was also very important to me that he have a very strong relationship with his grandparents, culturally speaking. So that was good. But yeah, I many times I just took him with me and figured it out. Like I remember touring one of my one person shows called Broken Tailbone, where we were in LA for, I don't remember how long, like a month doing the show in downtown LA. And there was nothing else I could do. So he was on stage with me, but nobody knew he was on stage. He was literally on the stage, stage left, extreme stage left. And we put up a black curtain and found a couch. Oh. And he would lie on the couch with his headphones in and his little movie. <laughs> and just watch a movie while I did the show. That's beautiful. Yeah. So he spent his life backstage. But that one time he was on stage because there was no backstage. And it's like, I'm not going to like, no, I can't be worried about totally. my kid while I'm on stage. Like, where the hell is he? He's roaming around this you know, downtown LA. Like, no. Right. <laughs> So he was on stage with me, but nobody knew he was on stage. Yeah, no, it's been very, very hard, you know, and financially extremely difficult. You know how much daycare costs. It's insanity. I mean, luckily, I'm completely past that now that he's 15, but it was very, very hard, you know, and because it was always just me and him, I never, ever could get him on any kind of schedule. You know, like when people go oh, you know, mine goes to bed at eight o'clock every night and therefore they sleep through the night. And then I'm like, yeah, but I'm on stage at that time. He's backstage or on stage with me (laughs) being shipped back and forth between different babysitters and my mother. So no, he was a terrible sleeper for the first four and a half years of his life because he never had a schedule. And so the guilt, I know that you can relate to this, you know, the guilt that comes with all of this is horrific. But at the same time, he is a very strong person. He's very adaptable. He'll adapt to anything. Like he can sleep anywhere, live anywhere. And because it's just him and I, he's very happy to be in his own company. Brilliant. So he's very selective when it comes to friendships. He's like, oh my God, I'd rather spend time alone than be with a group of people that I don't really feel like hanging out with. So there's definitely some great qualities. To the fact that he grew up this way. And also, even if I wanted to, I wasn't never a helicopter parent. I mean, even if I wanted to, I couldn't. What, I'm going to be a helicopter parent when I have all these deadlines? It's a sole income household. I have to work. So 
I think that's also been helpful for him, you know, that he's learned to figure it out on his own. And they do have so much capacity and wisdom, children, I think, yes. that maybe we don't, you know, as a society or whatever, give them credit for the resilience that they have. And I think there's something about seeing your mother do what she needs to do and what she's meant to do. And the resilience that that can foster is amazing. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And it's very funny. Like (laughs) he thinks so highly of me, which is hilarious. So yesterday when I did this Lois and Superman or whatever it's called, Superman and Lois show. And I told you I played the mother of one of the co-stars, right? Yeah. So he's like, oh, what was the show you were doing? And I was like, oh, it's called Superman and Lois. And he's like, oh, so you're Lois? (laughs) Oh, yes. Now that show I would watch. (laughs) Actually, the one where you're Superman. That's the one I want to watch. That would would be fun. (laughs) Oh, yay. Yeah, yeah. So cute. Does he have any interest in theater? Oh. Mine is like. Why would I do that? Yes. Thank God. Mine is the same. Yeah. Thank God. Is there anything he's into? Like really into? Yes. He, he, he says he wants to be like a film editor, which is great. Ooh. I think that would really suit him. Um, and the good thing is that we're walking distance from Vancouver Film School. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, hopefully he sticks with that and he can just walk to school. Brilliant. Oh, the babies. I remember seeing you walking in Kitsilano. This was maybe a year or two before I was like, oh my God, I need a baby. That's exactly how it happened. Oh my God, I need a baby. Um, I saw you with him and he was tiny. And I was like, if Carmen can do that. Of course, you know, so hard, but so I feel like the theater community and dance community have been just great. I too was always bringing Jasper everywhere with me. And I feel like you were a trailblazer a bit too. There was part of me that's like, okay, I saw you doing that. I saw a couple other women doing that. It's like, okay, we're going to bring the kid. Yes. Do you feel like you were welcomed and accommodated? And Yes, absolutely. Yeah. At Electric Company too, we always add that line, childcare in our budgets, you know, I'm sure that dates back to Kim and John, right? Right. Um, course. Yeah. Kim and John being parents. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that we're supposed to, you know, negate or make invisible our lives. Yes. You know, as human beings is quite ludicrous. Yes. I feel huge privilege in the arts community, especially theater and dance is definitely catching up Uh that you bring who you are and that's how, that's how you can make art really. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Are you working on something right now? Are you writing something or is there something like? Yes, I'm working on several things. Um, I have a commission from the Factory Theater. Mm. I can feel the rehearsal draft coming. I've been writing it for a while. So I've written a few drafts and it's getting closer. And that's an adaptation of Moliere's The Learned Ladies. Ooh. Yeah, and it's been great. It's been so much fun writing it. I've written the entire thing in verse, <gasps> which has been extremely, extremely time-consuming. But I think it's working. And I'm setting it on a North American university campus in present day. And it is a satire on the Me Too movement. So it is a very controversial piece. But as far as I'm concerned, if you're not taking a risk as an artist, you shouldn't be doing it. 
Here, here. Yeah. Every single thing that I write, I'm scared. And that's my gauge. If I'm not scared, then I shouldn't be writing it. So yeah, it's a satire on the Me Too movement. Um, I think that I do have some authority to get into that because, you know, I was raped at gunpoint, brutally raped at gunpoint as a child. Um, So I think I can speak to this, to the satire bit, right? It's very interesting because although what I just told you is very public, I wrote a whole book about it called Mexican Hooker Number One. The assumption that has been made about me is that that is the only experience I've ever had <laughs> with sexual assault or sexual harassment, right? It's like, no, that's the one I'm public with. You know, yeah. I understand sexual assault and sexual harassment when it's much more nuanced, right? Than just a psychopath coming at you with a gun when you're a child. I understand that is an extreme case and that there are many other cases which are far more nuanced because I've been through them, yeah. right? I'm just not public about them. Anyway, doing that one. And I was commissioned by Rumble Theater when Stephen Drover was the artistic director of Rumble Theater. He commissioned me to adapt Euripides Medea. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I've been having an amazing time adapting that. And I'm setting it in 1980 at Kingsway and Fraser (laughs) in Little Saigon. So all the characters are Vietnamese boat people, including Medea. And I have a really strong connection to Vietnam because like I said earlier, I was raised in a socialist family. I'm from Chile and leftists in Latin America, which are hundreds of millions of people. (laughs) (laughs) We were all extremely inspired by the fact that the Vietnamese Liberation Army kicked the ass of the Americans and won war in 1975. So I grew up hearing about it. And there were all kinds of songs written for the Vietnamese people by Latin Americans that were sung in my house. And, you know, and when we arrived here in Vancouver in 1974, one of the communities that really took us in were the draft dodgers. Right. From the U.S., right, who refused to go to Vietnam and kill indigenous Vietnamese people, right? Um, One of the people that took us in was actually like a person who had already been to Vietnam, who was kind of high up in the US Army and went AWOL, just went, fuck this shit and left, right? (laughs) It was AWOL. Um, And also in 1990, when I came back to Vancouver, after having spent all of the 80s in South America, I got a job on the assembly line of a factory, of of a tofu wiener factory in the Clark and Venables area. And the two people that were right next, to, one of them was directly across from me and one was right next to me on the assembly line eight hours a day were these two Vietnamese women who were more or less my age, like 21, 22, yeah. who worked all day in this factory and then washed dishes at night at a restaurant in Chinatown and then rented a room upstairs from the restaurant. And basically they would send most of their wages back to Vietnam right? They didn't speak a word of English. And somehow we figured like we figured out how to communicate and we would take lunch together. So anyway, all of that to say is that all of those stories that I just told you are part of this play right. of my adaptation of Medea and I've based Medea on, you know, she also washes dishes and, you know, lives in a room above the restaurant. And most of the play takes place in the back alley of the restaurant at Kingsway and Fraser. So I'm doing that. Even though it was commissioned by Rumble, it's not going to be produced by Rumble. The new artistic director who's been fabulous, Jiv, yes. amazing at helping develop the play, 
in a respectful and careful manner. You know, we hired Vietnamese cultural consultants from the get-go, Yeah, had Vietnamese people in the room for every single workshop, including most, most, if not all of the actors, et cetera, et cetera. But Rumble is not able to produce it because it's too expensive. Ah, uh, yeah. But I'm still working on it. Um, and it will be produced. I'm just not at liberty to say where at this moment because it's, okay. it's not public knowledge yet. So I'm working on that. I'm also um, working on a commission from Stratford. That's long-term. That's way off in the future. But I'm adapting this incredible book that I read by Peter Leinbaugh and Marcus Redeker called The Many-Headed Hydra. It's a very dense, dense historical book. It's not a novel. It's just a history book. And it basically charts hundreds of uprisings that took place in the 17th and 18th centuries during the transatlantic slave trade. And what's amazing about the uprisings that they are writing about is that they're all multiracial. Wow. Right? So again, I'm having a real problem with the neoliberal identity politic that has taken over. Mm -hmm. And what I like about this book is that it charts uprisings where Irish laborers, African slaves, you know, pirates who are white, you know, uh, soldiers who are white, you know, indigenous people, sailors who are white, all get together and organize Mm -hmm. to revolt against capitalism, colonization, and slavery. And they have a vision, right? And their vision is to return to the commons, Mm. you know, where up until four or 500 years ago, much of humanity for tens of thousands of years was organized into commons into a commons into communes yeah and so these uprisings were not only against slavery colonization and capitalism and the rise of capitalism they also had the vision of let's go back to the commons yes wherever we find ourselves right are we in virginia are we in barbados are we in ireland or england it doesn't matter where we find ourselves now let's build the commons again it's a real challenge to our amnesia you know, in the global north of what once was pretty much all over the planet, right? Before colonization of the last four or 500 years. So that's what this book charts. And I'm trying to adapt it into this huge play <laughs> Wow! for Stratford. And they said, you know, write it for like 24 actors, like write a big play. And this is just the very beginning. So this is years away from coming to fruition. So I'm working on those three and then uh, on a tiny little, um, which of course you should never say tiny because it's never tiny. It's never tiny. On this like six minute video, which charts the history of Latin America from 500 years ago until today with this amazing animation artist called Cara Sivright. So we're doing that little video for the Canadian Latinx Theatre Artists Coalition. And I forgot what else I'm doing. Oh, right. No, I'm also almost finished writing a pilot, a TV pilot for basically Screen Siren, which is this amazing film company here in Vancouver, has optioned the rights to my book, Something Fierce. Oh, brilliant. So busy writing with my co-writer, Dennis Foon, who's a genius. Oh, Dennis is amazing too. Yeah. And so it's been amazing learning from him, you know? So there's a few more things, but we can stop there in terms of what I'm up to these days. (laughs) 
I'm hearing an apple face, Carmen. <laughs> oh, you have so much spare time. Oh, my God. I want to respect your time, but I have one more question. Okay. The role of satire in comedy. You know, so much of your books and your plays, there's just this delicious line of, of satire and comedy that really flips from tragedy to comedy. And what do you see for yourself or going forward, the role of, of comedy and satire for your work or the whole world, really? Right. Yeah. Well, for my work, it'll always be there. First of all, I think it's um, strong medicine, you know, a great way to tell a story. And also it's culturally specific. I know you've spent time in Chile, right? But it's all about the humor. Like oh, man. the darker the situation, the funnier you make it, right? Like that's the point, you know? <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah. I only spent two years there, but I felt like, wow, this is good stuff. Yeah, it's what I miss the most really about that culture about being immersed in that culture, right? The second I land at the airport in Santiago, every time I just let out this huge sigh because I'm in it right away. Like the humor, that humor, like it's right there. Like even the guy who's checking your passport, like it's, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Fantastically disarming. Yeah. And comforting at the same time. Yeah. I'm glad that you feel the same way. Some people don't, right? So for me, it's also cultural as well. Like the use of humor and satire in my work. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I come from a very much kind of genericized Jewish ancestry, but there's that vein that (laughs) runs through. If you can't have a really good, inappropriate laugh about something, yes, you're not going to get through it. Exactly. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I can't wait for all these projects. (laughs) I will... um, I'll link in the show notes. Okay. I like to kind of finish with one thing that maybe you're doing right now as a creative person that is really working for you, be it, you know, writing for 20 minutes every morning or doing yoga before you go to bed or just anything like that, that we can just leave people with as like, hmm, maybe I'll try that. Oh, I mean, for me, it's like, I sleep as much as I possibly can. That's a good one. Yeah. I use Netflix and the streaming services to go into a coma. Like I don't watch things that make me sad or angry. So I just, I mean, I've been watching Chicago fire because the men are so hot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. Those men are hot. Uh, (laughs) Where's the fire? (laughs) I don't know what else to say. I mean, before COVID, I would go salsa dancing pretty much every Saturday. That was my big thing. Whenever there was a Latinx dance hall, you know, I would go there and just unplug from everything and just be with my people, doing my thing, dancing. It was amazing. So I hope to return to that. I went to one underground salsa dance during COVID (laughs) with my mask, right? Oh my God, it was amazing. Yeah. And Deep East Van, right? Talk about medicine, hey? Yeah. Those are really good. Yeah. Sleep as much as you can. Watch Netflix that doesn't make you upset. And (laughs) maybe with some, you know. Super hot people. Super hot people. (laughs) And dance your ass off. Totally. Whenever you can. Yes. Those are good. Those are really good. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Carmen. Do check out the links in her show notes or just look up Carmen Aguirre. 
Please get in touch. We are on Instagram, Tarashan TCP, Facebook, Tarashan Performance, or you can even email. Do you remember email? Info at Tarashan.com. Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne is a production of Tara Cheyenne Performance. It is produced, edited, and original music made by Mark Stewart. MarkStewartMusic.com The more you create, the more powerful you become. The more you consume, the more powerful others become. That's a quote from James Clear, who wrote a book called Atomic Habits, which I'm super into. It's super interesting. Have a wonderful December and... We'll see you soon. This podcast is effing good.